Genesis chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 1. Genesis chapter 3 and Exodus 1, you've got a handout this evening, and the key verse to Genesis, the book of Genesis is Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, and God gives them an outstanding implicit promise as he condemns the insurgent, the devil. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, or I will put spiritual warfare between you and the woman. The very first verse in the Bible about spiritual warfare. I will put spiritual warfare between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. In other words, he shall inflict a mortal wound. You shall bruise his heel. A wound, but not as severe as the head. Here you have an allusion to the cross of Jesus Christ. But the promise here is of descendants who would come into the world to overthrow the rule and the kingdom of Satan. Well, we find that that is picked up remarkably by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus and chapter 1, in verses 1 through 7, it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man with his household came to, to, with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon. Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful in, in four ways of saying this. Four ways of saying they grew in this one verse. They were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them, so that by the time they have their exodus out of Egypt, there are about two million of them. They've gone from the promise of a seed to two million people in the land of Egypt. And that really is a the theme of the Scripture, the birth of descendants to tear down the kingdom of Satan. Now, the key thought of Genesis is this. God created the heavens and the earth as a kingdom for His Son. And it was intended to be filled with his kingdom. But Adam and Eve betrayed the king and handed over legal authority and right to the earth to Satan himself. And he established a Satanocracy in the earth. Jesus Christ came, the rest of the story as you know, to repurchase the earth. He paid for it with his blood and purchased it, paid the fine with his blood and repurchased it for his purposes. This all began in Abraham. In Abraham, God began a program to reclaim, redeem, and restore creation as Christ's kingdom. Now, the key concepts or the key content in the book of Genesis is this. One, Genesis is an enlightening book. It helps us make sense of the rest of the Bible. The Bible's focus on descendants, nations, salvation, sin, and Israel. It would be hard to understand the rest of the Bible without the book of Genesis. But it's also a real book. Ray Stedman says that the people portrayed in Genesis experienced great failures, deep hurts, and great successes. In fact, you will find in Genesis that there are very few happy marriages and families. In fact, as you read from there to the book of Revelation, you will be hard-pressed to find a single good marriage or happy family. 
In fact, the most popular story in the New Testament outside the death of Christ is about the prodigal son, and that was, at least for a moment, an unhappy family. There are a few scattered here and there, we assume, but there really are not many happy families or marriages in the Bible. They are all disrupted with some serious conflict. And so, uh, the book of Genesis is very, very real. Uh, the book of Genesis is a name book, the name of individuals and the name of places. There's God, Adam, Satan, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The places are simple. They're Eden, Ararat, Babel, Ur, Canaan, and Egypt. This is why I believe Genesis is a real historical document. You do not find the land of Narnia in the book of Genesis. You find place names and real peoples. In other words, Genesis is couched in historical terms. And so it's a historical book. It really happened. And then Genesis is an interesting book. It stirs great interest, and it always has. Jerry Vines said of it, it begins with creation and ends with the curse. It begins with God creating the earth. It ends with a man in Egypt. It begins with glory and ends in a grave. Genesis begins with the living God. It ends with a dead man, Joseph. Um, the key contributions. Genesis helps us understand our own world. You will read the pages of Genesis and you will find yourself there. You may find your family at different uh, places in your family's history there in the book of Genesis. You will find culture and society there. It helps us understand the world, the cosmos, humans, sin, redemption, family, civilization, the nations of the world, and Israel, which has been a focus of the world since Genesis chapter 12, all the way back to that time. Well, Genesis is divided up into two large sections. There's Genesis 1 through 11, and then there is Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis 1 through 11 includes four historical events. Genesis 12 through 50 includes four Hebrew examples. And so Genesis 1 through 11, four historical events. Those four are creation, fall, flood, and Babel. Say that with me. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. And, who, uh, and what, is, what section is this? Four what? Historical events. Four historical events. Say it with me again. Four historical events, and they are creation, fall, flood, and Babel. Excellent. And then we move on to the four Hebrew uh, examples. And they are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, Abraham, J Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are what? Four Hebrew examples. Say that with me. Four Hebrew examples. And they are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, name for me then the four historical events. Creation, fall, flood, Babel, Four Hebrew examples, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You've just memorized the book of Genesis. You've done a good job. Excellent. I'm impressed. I knew you could do it. Well, the first event is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, says verse 1. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the story of Henry Ward Beecher, a 19th century preacher, who was good friends with the hostile agnostic Robert Ingersoll who traveled the country lambasting the Christian faith, at least the eastern side of the nation. And uh, one day Ingersoll came to, um, uh, came to Beecher, and uh, they uh, were together one day, 
And Ingersoll asked Beecher, hey, I've read a recent book. I wanted to know if you've read it. It is Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. And Beecher said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, um, truth is, is that we have evolved through them over a period of millions and millions of years. And Beecher said, where did humans come from? He said, they came from apes. Where did the apes come from? Well, they came from fish in the sea. Well, where did they come from? Well, they came from single-cell organisms, and they developed in complexity as time went on according to their environment and their need. And then Beecher said, well, where did these seas and the world and the heavens and the earth come from? He said, they didn't come from anywhere. They just happened. Well, Ingersoll was by Beecher's church office one day, and he saw that Beecher had a new globe in his office. A wonderful depiction of the earth on that globe. And Beecher said, or excuse me, Ingersoll said, where'd you get this? He said, nowhere, it just happened. Truth be told, ladies and gentlemen, everything comes from somewhere, does it not? If you're walking along and you happen to find a watch in the road, you don't imagine there's been an explosion in the junkyard at all and that these pieces fell randomly together. Oh no, that's not what you think at all. You assume there has been a watchmaker. Well, you look at the complexity of the earth, even the simplest creature in the earth has got to come from somewhere and there is a creator, creator God. Genesis 1 and 2 make that clear. Now, there are some liberal critics that will criticize Genesis 1 and 2 for a multiple number of reasons. One of them, they will say, is that there are two contradictory accounts of creation. Genesis 1 is one account. Genesis 2 is another account. They're half right. There are two stories of creation. But why do two stories have to be contradictory with one another? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you've got eyewitnesses to the same event and they go through a deposition, one's going to have some facts and one's going to have another. And then sometimes when I tell a story, I tell it one way one time and another time another way with different details and both are, end up being true. And that is the way normal human beings speak. But Genesis 1 is the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth and it takes a large view of, Genesis, uh, of the creation. It steps back and looks at the creation through a telescope. Through a telescope. But you get into Genesis chapter 2 and you're no longer looking through a telescope. You're looking through a microscope. You're looking at more detail of the creation of Eden and humanity. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 7. Genesis 2 and verse number 7. Here's some detail. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then the creation of woman. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now this is detail about where the male and the female came from. Well, back in Genesis 1, there is very little detail. In fact, it refers to men and women generically with the generic term man. And that's how he ended up making them. So telescope in Genesis 1, microscope in Genesis 2. Now that's a remarkable thing here in Genesis chapter 2 with the description of women. Uh, most of the cultures of the earth do not honor women as they should, as the Christian faith teaches. Instead, they oftentimes begin to denigrate women, even with their stories of the origin of their cultures. But Genesis chapter 2 describes her as coming from flesh, that God made her, and she is a helpmate to 
uh, her husband the man. She is not a beast of burden as she is in many nations of the earth. She is more than a laboratory for the birth of children, as important as that happens to be. And unlike the American sentiment, she is not a sexual play thing. She is as dignified, she is co-equal with the man, and she has the same dignity as any male. Well, that's what we find in creation. Then we have the fall. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 1,189 chapters of the Bible. Now look at your neighbor and said, you better read them all. 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And there are only four, only four that are unaffected by Genesis chapter 3. Everything that develops in the Bible, except those four chapters, develops because of Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall into sin and death and judgment with the human race. Everything else is affected. The Bible unfolds as it does because of this one chapter. Adam and Eve sin by taking a forbidden fruit, and God judges them and spends the rest of the Bible seeking to acquit them and justify them by faith in a blood sacrifice. So only four are unaffected by this chapter. Now this chapter in Genesis 3 then explains centuries of human heartache, misery, torture, and bloodshed, sometimes showing up in the same family. And it sets up the major topics of the Bible. It explains why the major topics of the Bible are necessary, such as blood, sacrifice, altar, temple, why... um, Uh, why priests are necessary, why the cross and the resurrection were necessary, why the mission of Israel and the church were necessary, all of it because of the fall of humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, it is impossible to overstate the importance of Genesis chapter 3. Well, then then there's the flood, Genesis 6 through 10. In the flood, God uncreates the earth. He obliterates it. And there are many who say and have observed that when a flood hits an area, it obliterates it much like a bomb might obliterate a neighborhood on which it fell. This is a universal flood, and it is obliterated. The earth is obliterated. Now, in response to that, God ends up, in a sense, recreating the earth in something of a new humanity. Look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. Genesis 9, verse 1. So God uncreates the earth in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8. In chapter 9, he begins to recreate a new humanity. And so the theme of creation resurfaces in Genesis 9. It does our salvation as well, for if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. But look what happens in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And tell me if you have read these words someplace else in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have you read similar words in the book of Genesis before? God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is their commission, with God's blessing. Have you read similar words someplace in the book of Genesis? Where have you read these words uh, in similar fashion in Genesis? 
Genesis chapter 1. Back in verse number 26, God blessed them and said, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now there's a missionary commission here. Be fruitful and go out and fill up the earth. And so that happens to be the flood. Then we go into Babel. We go into Babel. Genesis chapter 11 demonstrates they didn't listen to Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. They multiplied, they formed nations in chapter 10, and by Genesis 11 they are doing something different than what God told them to do. They are building a religious tower up to the heavens called the Tower of Babel. Ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Colson said that religion has been the biggest headache God has ever had. In some cases that is absolutely true. And that's what we find in Genesis chapter 11. God's told them to cover up the earth. Instead, they congregate at Babel. God has told them to be fruitful and multiply. Instead, they build this tower to the earth. This exposes the constant tendency of humanity to invent an alternative mission for life and to build a substitute kingdom for themselves. So what you have in these first 11 chapters is God launching a kingdom and it falling into all sorts of sin and wickedness. Adam and Eve fail. Cain fails with Abel. Lamech fails with a young man at the end of Genesis chapter 4. The whole earth fails in Genesis 6, 7, 8. Noah fails by getting drunk by again partaking in a wrong way of fruit, just like Adam and Eve did. One after the other, they fail, and this failure culminates in Babel. Can't somebody get it right? That's what you have. And then along comes Abraham. And that moves us to the four Hebrew examples. Here's Abraham in Genesis chapter, um, chapter 12 down through chapter 25. Now, there's some couplets that uh, explain Abraham. But before we talk about those, I want you to look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you, which is what every missionary has got to do. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Into verse number three, panta to ethne shall be blessed. All the nations, all the people of the earth shall be blessed. In the um, uh, Greek uh, Old Testament, it's panta to ethne. When Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, he said panta to ethne is what Matthew wrote and recorded. Jesus is picking up the language of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Five times the word bless is used in these three verses. Multiple times the word curse is used in these verses. Now, there are three couplets to think about when you think about Abraham in his life and service. There's mission and blessing. Here in this text, God calls him to a mission, a blessing throughout the earth. And the whole earth has been blessed by the descendants of Abraham, whether they are the physical descendants or they are the spiritual descendants who come to God by faith. So there's mission and blessing. Then there are the Hebrews and the nation. Abraham begins the Hebrew nation. He's the first Hebrew. 
and he's to be a blessing to all the nations, which uh, moves him from being particularly Hebrew to being a universal character. And so he's to be concerned about the nations. And then faith and righteousness. Genesis 15, 7 says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In other words, we come before God, we say, dear God, I don't have any righteousness. I have absolutely no business approaching you. I have no claim upon your heaven or your presence. I cannot get there on my own. I am filthy. I am dirty. God, I am not righteous. What do I do? And God says, do you have faith? Yes, I'll take that. I'll take faith as a substitute for righteousness. And then I will inhabit you and I will begin to build you into someone who is righteous. And you will enter my presence simply because of faith. Well, that's Abraham. But Abraham failed. Abraham lied. Abraham Abraham had a son uh, by a woman other than his wife, Hagar, and Ishmael. And the whole world's been battling over that ever since. But then there's Isaac. Most commentators are not very impressed with Isaac, unfortunately. Uh, There's some that call him colorless and petty. Nevertheless, Isaac is a connection between Abraham and Jacob. And without Isaac, there is no Jacob. And without Isaac, there are no 12 sons or tribes of Israel. And there is no nation of Israel. Isaac willingly cooperated with his father, Abraham, in the sacrifice in Genesis chapter 22, just as Jesus cooperated with his father in the sacrifice at the cross. And I believe he believed God would raise him from the dead. But just like his father, he, he fails and he lies. He ends up favoring one child over another as well. But then there's Jacob. Jacob occupies about 25% of the book of Genesis. About one out of every four verses in Genesis is dedicated to Jacob. He is a major character. And he links, links on one hand, Abraham and Isaac with the 12 tribes of Israel and the nation of Israel on the other hand. And we can summarize Jacob's life in three couplets. Uh, the first part of his life, he's a schemer and a deceiver. So much so, he aggravates his brother and his brother wants to kill him in Genesis chapter 27 and 28. But then he's a servant and he's deceived by Laban himself in Genesis 28 through 31. But there he becomes rather wealthy and leaves there and becomes a saint and devoted in Genesis 32 through 36. Jacob's life is marked with failure from left to right. Abraham has failed. Isaac has failed. Jacob has failed. But then we get into the life of Joseph. Like Jacob, Joseph occupies about 25% of the Bible. And Jacob and Joseph together occupy 56% of the Bible, more than one out of every two verses. Joseph links Jacob's family with the nation of Israel. And it's because of Joseph that Israel ends up coming to Egypt, which sets the stage for the great exodus and the Passover and the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel. Now, you know the story of Joseph. Much of our culture is familiar with it. He uh, is quite naive when he's a teenager at 17. God gives him a vision for his life. And uh, Joseph does what we need to always be careful of doing, and that's telling everything that we know. 
And so he brags and exalts himself above his brothers and his uh, parents. And they resent him for it, so they throw him in a pit. They sell him to Ishmaelite traders, and they sell him to Potiphar. Uh, he's falsely accused of a crime, and so he ends up in prison. He interprets one of Pharaoh's dreams, and so he's elevated to uh, the second in charge in the land. So he goes from pit to Potiphar to prison to the pinnacle. He is a man of suffering. And this sets the theme for the rest of the Scripture where God's people must suffer to accomplish the will of God. Paul would put it this way later in Acts chapter 15. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's what Joseph ends up experiencing in his own life. He is a man of suffering, but through his suffering, something remarkable happens in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And this is remarkable insight on the part of this young man. He's been abused. He's been mistreated. He's been betrayed by his family. They come to Egypt. They reconcile. Jacob's father dies. And they considered uh, Jacob as a firewall between them and Joseph, uh, his brothers did, a firewall. Well, Jacob's dead. There's no more firewall. They are scared out of their minds that the second most powerful man in Egypt is now going to turn upon them and their families. And Joseph looks at them like, what are you talking about? Verse number 19, do not be afraid, for I, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you. And friend, that's precisely what God is saying to you. Though we have heaped abuse upon God and His presence and Spirit, though God has been wounded by every one of our sins, though God has been traumatized by all of our rebellion. He comes to us and says, because you trust my son, do not be afraid. What you meant for evil against me, I will turn into good to save many people alive as it is this day. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you. That is the message of the good news of the Old Testament, finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Darrell Williams was a tremendous high school football running back. He was a young African-American man that was really capable. And one day, three young white guys, full of racism and hatred and animosity in their heart, chased him down and shot him. And with the uh, bullet of the, from, the trigger, from, the, from that weapon, it sliced his spinal cord. And Daryl was paralyzed from the waist down for the balance of his life. He was asked about this years later. He said, those fellows have never come seen me. They've never apologized, but I'm not going to hate them. That's not what I'm going to do. He said, hate is a useless emotion. How would I be any different from them if I hated them? My religion and common sense teach me to forgive. You might struggle with forgiveness, but let me assure you, God never does. God never struggles to forgive those who trust His Son, Jesus. And I don't know what you're struggling with tonight. I don't know how you need grace, but there's plenty of it, and God's giving it away for free. You can have all that you need tonight. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the good news of the Word. We praise You for being so kind and so good to us. And I pray that You'll strengthen us in the way. 
Father, help us to look to you and trust you as the God and Lord of all and work in our lives persistently with patience and with steadfastness to make us what you want us to be that we might fulfill your mission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Hey, next week, bring a friend. We're going to look at Exodus, how uh, God got Israel out of Egypt, and then how he got the Egypt out of Israel. All right? See you next week.